Welcome to the REIG Prime Review, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, REORG's Katarina Mura speaks with Richard Byrne, president of Benefit Street Partners, about the market's struggle to adjust to the rapid rise in interest rates, new paradigms and differentiation in the markets, and investment opportunities for new capital. And as always, we bring you our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. REORG is hosting an in-person event, Opportunities and Trends Across Performing Credit and CLOs, on November 16th at the Intercontinental New York Barclay in New York. The program, which begins at 3.30 p.m., will cover critical topics in performing credit, including a performing credit trends panel, a presentation of the media sector, and a CLO fireside chat. To join us for our conference on November 16th, please register at REORG.com. Also, we'd love to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, November 6th. Welcome back to the Reorg Primary View podcast. Today, we have Rich Byrne as our guest. Rich is the president of Benefit Street Partners, a credit-focused alternative asset manager that was acquired by Franklin Templeton in 2019. He's also the chairman and CEO of Franklin BSB Capital Corporation and Franklin BSB Lending Corporation, two business development companies making investments in private credit, as well as a couple of real estate investment trusts. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, Rich. I want to talk about retail investors in the private credit space, but also about your outlook on the market. So I'll start there. I know you've talked in the past about how higher interest rates present both a headwind and a tailwind for lenders. Looking at the current high interest rate environment with, for example, 10-year treasury notes um, hitting around 5%, how do you see that environment impacting private credit? Great. Hi, Katrina. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm very excited. I know it's a short podcast, so we're going to pack it with information. Um, uh, yeah, the market outlook is is really interesting right now. As you said, headwinds and tailwinds. The tailwinds um, are great. Interest rates are as high as they've been in a long time. More importantly, they rose so quickly and so rapidly that it's, it's, uh, there's never a just-in-time delivery of financial markets to adjust to things like this. So um, the market is still you know, um, repricing and adjusting to all that's gone on. And I think the conclusion of that is for new capital, this is about as good a time as any to invest in private credit or frankly, you know, most credit markets. Why? Because uh, yields are super high. Also, the deals we're seeing now are better. They're less levered, better covenants, and even the credit spreads have come in a little bit, but they're still really high. So for new capital, this is a tremendous opportunity. There just aren't a lot of deals because M&As needs to pick up. You know, we're underwriting loans at 11 12%. Um, and what's the flip side? The default rate's going to go up. Of course, it's going to go up for the reasons we talked about. But we've been operating with a default rate near zero. It's been one and a half percent. It still is today. Um, our own forecast, uh, Katrina, is that it's going to double. We think it's going to go to three. It could even go to four. Um, I mean, on a percentage basis, that's a huge spike up. But from a historical perspective, it's not at all. I mean, there's been many periods where 
default rates have been double digits or teens. Um, we just don't see that. The economy's too good, um, et cetera. So part of the reason for the positive outlook is just the increased income we're generating just far outweighs the increase in, in risk. People are going to have to get used to the new paradigm that there's just going to be more defaults. And I think the market's going to differentiate. So even if a company doesn't default, I think market's going to continue to be much more punitive about the underperforming companies. There'll be dispersion. I think this is a great argument for having an active manager, you know, manager selection is going to be, you know, important, you know, things were so undifferentiated and the market moved up in, in, in concert um, for so long that it, none of this mattered so much, you know, for a while. And I think stuff like that is going to matter. So, you know, there'll be vast differences in performance also in portfolio construction um, portfolios that we have, for example, for the most part are first lean. Uh, 90% first lean, you know, people that are doing MES investing or investing in the wrong sectors or whatever are going to see much different return outcomes. So um, I think it'll just be a more uh, differentiated and more active good managers will will have the opportunity to shine. Right. And so when you were descri describing the, those two dynamics, um, essentially there's, there's a big difference when you're looking at existing portfolios versus new loans, right? Correct. Um, the market has adjusted. Markets are a very dynamic thing. So a loan that was underwritten in 2021, uh, on average, the loans we underwrote had about uh, a 2.6, 2.7 times interest coverage. Very helpful. Mm -hmm. But you just mathematically move, look at what that interest coverage would be, assuming nothing changed about the company. And the higher SOFR would take about a one turn of interest coverage away from that. So that 2.6 would be like 1.6. That's still okay. I mean, that's still a margin for error. It's just not as big a margin for error. So what has the new market, what has the market done for new deals? I mentioned they're less leveraged. Well, it's very hard to solve for getting back to 2.6 times interest coverage because SOFR went up so much. But um, but at this, but we're making part of that have a reality. Uh, the average loan now, um, a sponsor deal, uh, might have had um, a sponsor check being about um, 40% of the purchase price. Today, that's closer to 60% of the purchase price. So the loan to value just went on that average deal from 40% to 60%. That's just a better deal. It's less leveraged. The interest coverage may still not be quite as good, but it's less levered. So um, this is why this current vintage is so good. As I was about to say, the problem is the only negative of all that is that um, supply is limited. You know, M&A volume is just low. Um, it always, you know, when when events happen so rapidly, it, it doesn't, uh, you can't just turn on the M&A spigot because prices haven't necessarily fully adjusted yet for the new realities of the market. So we're going to see M&A pick up. It's just been slow. So I think, as I said, people will look back on this vintage of deals and say it's one of the best vintages that people have. And very few investors are able to take advantage of it because they just don't have the capital coming in to, 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 uh, to load up, as they say, back up the truck on some of these new, really attractively priced companies. That's great. Thank you, Rich. Uh, now, I also want to talk a little bit about retail investors in the private credit space, uh, which has grown immensely in the past uh, few months and years and has traditionally relied more on institutional investors. And I know, of course, that you uh, also run a couple of uh, private credit focused BDCs. Um, so 
started, I just wanted to start off by asking how important do you see retail becoming in private credit, both generally in the sector and also specifically when it comes to your strategy with Benefit Street Partners? Good. Well, um, it's a really good question because retail is has been important and is going to be even more so going forward. So first of all, just a level set, retail is, um, well, let me start here. Private credit is uh, has provided some really good outside risk re reward uh, reward for the risk um, and has been uh, a growing allocation across institutional markets, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, et cetera. So we figured it was only a matter of time before this would catch on more with retail. The problem for retail is there wasn't really a fund structure, a wrapper, as they call it, that made tons of sense uh, because retail investors like products that are more liquid. And typically the funds that institutionals invest in are locked up, you know, lost seven-ish year funds where they can't really access the money, which isn't really a product that retail likes. So retail's only choice uh, up until recently was to buy public BDCs um, or some of these private to public BDCs, same thing. I mean, just BDCs that'll eventually be, either are or eventually will be public. Um, and retail has been a pretty big, depending on the BDC, could be more than half of the outstanding shareholders. Um, I think on average is somewhere just under 50% of you know, the holdings of, of most BDCs. So uh, retail has been involved. Um, but the most recent increase spike in retail investing in the asset class came with the um, popularity of the um, uh, perpetual private BDCs, um, which have been sold by a number of large platforms um, as a different access point. Um, I think one of the reasons why that has been more popular maybe than retail investors just buying BDCs public ones, is that the price doesn't move as often. What do I mean by that? Um, the price will move. In other words, the net asset value will move. Portfolios up or down in a given quarter, the price will move a few pennies up, a few pennies down, or bigger moves with bigger market moves, um, but not a ton of volatility. Um, whereas the public markets, you know, they're just fickle. <laughs> sometimes they'll go up a lot, sometimes less. Um, and the, the gyrations will be more dramatic. I think the salespeople, the advisors that, that put their clients into it, they know their clients don't love the volatility. So um, I think that's one of the main reasons that the perpetual product took off so much. It just isn't, you know, it just isn't moving with the frequency that public stocks move. Um, it, it's much more... Um, limited and uh it's i hate to say it but i mean that that seems to be the reason why the product has taken off so much um uh i i think there's other negatives that you get along with that but um but but there's been a, a lot of fundraising around these perpetual uh bdcs or other closed-end funds like bdcs that invest in private credit like interval funds um that uh um, that are feeding a lot of where a lot of the demand is coming from. Okay. And so, maybe, I mean, where do you see the opportunities and challenges with both the more traditional BDCs and uh, these perpetual private BDCs? Well, the, uh, the challenge of 
everybody, BDCs or any private funds, is default rates going to go up? As I said before, um, people are going to be living in a new reality that, um, you know, the returns are just going to be more differentiated and more volatile. Um, the opportunity is, as I said, the interest income is so much higher. We'll see how long interest rates stay high. We'll see if there's a recession coming. It used to be conversations used to be uh, how big do you think the recession is going to be? The conversations now, or do you think there's going to be a recession at all? So um, I don't, uh, we think that uh, our house view is either no recession or a very soft land. Um, so it's not one of our principal concerns. We also think rates are going to stay high for a while. So um, neither of those two things are, are haven't been resolved yet. And I think if you asked anybody those two questions a year ago, they probably would have given you very different answers to both of them. So uh, things move around. Um, and I think that's important. But, you know, those are some of the, the factors that will determine, you know, how good an asset class, how good these returns will end up being. Um, so we'll see how all that plays out. Um, our particular portfolio style, as I mentioned, we tend to be very conservative, top of the capital structure, uh, very low loan to values, uh, defensive sectors, non-cyclical, not fashion or trend oriented. Um, remember, we're in a fixed income, fixed income asset class. We don't have equity upside. There's no reason for us to take equity like risk. We like to, to invest in predictable, stable businesses that um, will generate free cash flow to pay down our debt. So you said recently uh, about BDC earnings calls um, that analysts and investors have been have been asking about the health of portfolios and looking at erosion signs. Um, what's your take on that? How are BDCs doing? Well, it's actually not that bad. So, um, so yeah, I, I always think it's funny. Like if you're a BDC, including us, if you're a BDC, you want to start with the good news on your call and. You talk about how your net income is growing. It's growing, gross, grew so much over the last year or so because rates keep going up. Um, so that's great. Most BDCs net income is growing. They're over covering their dividends. Things look great. But then the investors are smart. They, they say, okay, I understand that. I mean, that's all true. That's great news. But um, tell me about the portfolio. And then they want to dig in on, you know, are you, are, are there any, you know, there are more defaults and, the answer has been generally no. I told you the default rate is still very low. So they want to look for uh, KPIs or, you know, early indicators of like how the portfolio is performing. Have you down, you know, do you have an internal rating system? Has it been migration to, to a higher, you know, worse rating across the portfolio? Are you getting more amendment requests? And generally the answer to these questions is that um, it's like turning a ship. You turn the wheel now and the ship eventually turns later if it's a big ship. And, you know, a lot of this stuff happened, but a lot of these loans don't mature for a while. Um, you know, a lot of the reckoning maybe will occur at maturity for a lot of these loans. The economy's still been okay. So um, I think one of the best ways, you know, I always listen to a lot of talking head economists on TV. Maybe you'll have some on your podcast, but um, uh I think the best way to be economist is like the way we do it. We have like three, 400 portfolio loans across, uh, you know, our, our, what we've run just in the U S and more in, if you had Europe. Um, 
and we do quarterly reviews with every company and we just hear how are they doing and you know little micro trends and you know pricing and sales rates and margins and labor and and inputs and and uh things have been actually relatively good i don't think it will last forever hence our default rate forecast to double but um so it's going to get worse, but it's slow. Um, so, so far the news has been okay. Uh, I think it's going to get worse, but again, you got, we're getting so much more income for these vehicles that I think it far offsets, you know, the, the deterioration you're going to see when defaults pick up. Great. Thank you so much, Rich. It's been great to have you on the podcast and thank you for your insights. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. For in-court coverage this week, we take a look at Amaris, SVB Financial, Rite Aid, the high-yield industry's ongoing fight against stronger regulatory oversight, and the continuing fallout from bankruptcy judge David Jones's resignation in October. Fallout continues over a former Southern District of Texas bankruptcy judge David R. Jones' failure to disclose an intimate relationship with Elizabeth Freeman, a former partner at Jackson Walker. The U.S. Trustee's Office is calling on bankruptcy courts to vacate the compensation awarded to Jackson Walker by Jones during their relationship, saying that Jones approved more than $13 million in fees for Jackson Walker in at least 26 bankruptcy cases. Freeman herself billed about $1 million in fees in 17 of those cases, according to the UST. The ad hoc crossholder group moved for appointment of an examiner in the Amaris cases, alleging a cloud of self-dealing related to John Dorer, the debtor's largest equity holder and Amaris director. The group asserts the debtor's board, prepetition lender Fortis Ventures, and DIP lenders all act under Dorer's direction and or influence and purport to negotiate among themselves while sitting on all sides of the transactions. An independent examiner should investigate claims related to fraud and mismanagement and issue a report within 75 days of being appointed, the crossholders argue. SVB Financial Group's counsel told the bankruptcy court the debtor continues to have discussions with key stakeholders regarding the terms of a potential consensual plan. The debtor aims to finalize an agreement on plan terms ASAP, counsel said. SVBFG is also exploring strategic alternatives for SVB Capital, including a possible sale. The U.S. trustee appointed two official committees in Rite Aid Chapter 11 cases, and an official committee of unsecured creditors and an official committee of tort claimants. The nine-member UCC includes McKesson, which recently settled the dispute with Rite Aid over the party's supply agreement, the indenture trustee for the 7.7% unsecured notes due 2027, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp., and Humana Health Plan, holder of a $136.8 million litigation claim. The TCC members include Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Erie County Medical Center Corp., and seven individuals. Groups representing the $26.6 trillion private funds industry argue that the Securities and Exchange Commission recently adopted regulations requiring private fund advisors to provide additional financial disclosures to investors and restrict certain businesses' practices should be set aside under the Administrative Procedure Act. The industry groups have petitioned the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit to strike down the SEC final rule, arguing in an opening brief that the rule bulldozes the SEC's statutory authority because Congress never authorized the commission to redesign the governance structure of private funds. Lumen Technologies, Legato Networks, Odyssey, and WeWork round out this week's crop of near-term restructurings and refinancings. Along with announcing its third quarter financials, Lumen Technologies said this week that it had entered into a transaction support agreement with its subsidiaries, Level 3 Financing Inc. and Quest Corp., and certain debt holders of the company to provide the company comprehensive maturity extensions while allowing them to maintain sufficient operating liquidity and financial flexibility. The TSA contemplates $1.2 billion of new 11% secured notes through November 15, 2029 to be issued by Level 3. 
Proceeds will be ushering to Lumen via an intercompany loan. The loan will be secured on a super priority basis, par with Lumen's other super priority debt. An analysis of the TSA suggests most of Lumen's existing secured debt will be either stripped of liens or subordinated to new or exchange debt. Legato Networks told investors on November 1st that it entered into forbearance agreements and waivers with holders of all tranches of debt as well as Inmarsat. The satellite communications company agreed with majority firstly note holders and lenders to forbear until November 15th from exercising remedies as a result of Legato's failure to repay principal interest at the debt's maturity on November 1st and related cross default. Odyssey said that it intends to utilize the 30-day grace period to Related to its senior secured second lien 6.5% note to 2027 for the $15 million interest payment that was due on November 1st. It also noted that it continues to engage in discussions with its creditors regarding restructuring of the company's outstanding indebtedness. The company reported that it had entered into a supplemental indenture to extend the grace period on its 6.75% senior secured position second lien notes due 2029 to 60 days from 30 days. WeWork published an analysis this week analyzing the treatment of lease rejection claims in a potential WeWork bankruptcy. WeWork's complex web of lease liabilities includes agreements at special purpose entities with credit support provided by parent guarantees along with letters of credit backed by a SoftBank affiliate. As of December 31, 2022, WeWork reported $27.5 billion of rent commitments supported by a $3.7 billion of corporate guarantees, $1 billion of letters of credit, $210 million of security deposits, and $69 million of surety bonds, collectively representing credit support equal to about two years of rent. On Monday, October 30th, WeWork entered into a forbearance agreement with certain note holders that would run through November 6th, in which note holders would forbear from exercising any of their rights remedies as a result of the company's failure to make interest payments on the secured notes payable on October 2nd or within the subsequent 30-day grace period. To access Reorg's in-depth analysis of WeWork, please reach out to a Reorg representative. Top bird stories this week included TM Care Services provides further disclosures on related parties after court and senators decry lack of information. UCC says Texas divisional merger was avoidable frauds and transfer, but settlement superior to litigation. U.S. Treasury 10-year notes touch 5% as geopolitics rock markets. ECB holds rates steady while Adler bondholders challenge restructuring. Country Garden succumbs to the inevitable. China intervenes in economy. Rainier's Parry Plus term loan asset suite provisions provide broad claim on asset sale proceeds. Xerox Smart Global Transmontane Initiation Stage Well Fossil Group updates bore drilling etc. Primary review analysis of seven private loans now available. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York bringing you the week ahead. Welcome to the week ahead. My name is Kate Thomas. A longer schedule of this week's events, including earnings releases, can be found on the Reorg website under America's Week Ahead. Here are a few highlights. On Tuesday, the Genesis Global Debtors are scheduled to go forward with disclosure statement approval at what is shaping up to be a very contested hearing. The debtors filed an amended plan on October 25th after reaching an impasse on significant open issues of their agreement in principle with parent DCG. Under the new plan, the debtors would wind down their business and a litigation trust would pursue claims against DCG. Several parties, including DCG, filed objections to the disclosure statement and to the new plan. DCG claimed that the deal in principle should not be abandoned because it would make almost every creditor, quote, whole or nearly whole, unquote. DCG points out that because the no-deal plan relies on uncertain litigation claims, recoveries would be lower. Gemini also objected to the disclosure statement, arguing that no amount of disclosure can remedy the plan's failings. 
According to Gemini, the plan is patently unconfirmable because it is premised on siphoning value away from Gemini lenders and into the pockets of Genesis unsecured institutional creditors without due process. Gemini also asserts that its dispute with the debtors over the secured status of its claims and set-off rights should be resolved ahead of plan confirmation. On Wednesday, the U.S. trustee will ask the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit to overturn a bankruptcy court decision denying the appointment of an examiner in the FDX Chapter 11 cases. Bankruptcy Judge John Dorsey determined that he had discretion in deciding whether to appoint an independent examiner and that appointing an examiner would duplicate parallel FDX investigations by the debtors, the UCC, federal prosecutors, regulators, and Congress. The U.S. trustee argues that the bankruptcy code requires the appointment of an examiner over certain thresholds that apply to the FDX cases. The FDX debtors and Committee of Unsecured Creditors defend the lower court decision and point out that any party in interest could seek to appoint an examiner for an untoward purpose and obtain negotiation leverage without bankruptcy court discretion. A group of law professors filed an amici brief in support of the U.S. trustee and an examiner, noting the public's interest in an independent investigation into the, quote, spectacular rise and fall of FTX, unquote. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, including a schedule of earnings releases, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website. Have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Prime Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week and see you next Monday. 